Examining Ethics with Andy Collison is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. The views expressed here are the opinions of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the position of DePaul University or the Prindle Institute. Hi, everyone. This is Sandra Burton, one of the producers of the show. And there's something you all need to know about me, which is that I'm obsessed with religion in every capacity. I studied religion in college, um, and I'm always reading books about religion. It's just a subject that fascinates me. So I make a habit of visiting sort of different religious sites. Um, And so the Creation Museum in Kentucky has actually been at the top of my list for a really long time. Um, And so for those of you who might not know, the Creation Museum um, is a museum that supports the creationist view of the creation of the world, which is that God made the world in seven days, um, according to Genesis. And one of the most important beliefs of the Creation Museum is that the world is only about 6,000 years old, um, which means that they have a really big problem with the way evolutionary scientists kind of describe the creation of the world as we know it today over millions of years. Um, So at the museum, I finally got to go. um, And when you first walk in, there the first exhibit that you see is an exhibit about canyons. It is commonly taught that canyons are formed by rivers over a very long time. We know that mud flows from the crater of Mount St. Helens carved this canyon out of soft rocks in only hours, and this canyon out of solid rock in less than four years. So how are canyons really formed? So couldn't it be possible that all canyons were formed instantaneously. And I just got this super weird feeling about this video. I realized that all of these exhibits had in common this sort of skepticism. They weren't presenting evidence on their own. They weren't saying, well, we have counter evidence that the Grand Canyon was actually formed instantaneously. All they were saying was that couldn't it be? Couldn't it be possible that they, it was formed immediately? And it just, that sort of skepticism felt strange. So I just felt really icky about the way that these exhibits were set up. And I really didn't know if it was because I was biased against the subject matter or if there's actually something wrong with the way skepticism was being used as a tool um, in these exhibits. So I brought that back to Christian and Andy so that we could kind of figure out, is skepticism a good or bad tool to use? Is it, like at what point does it become bad, if ever? And what are the ethical implications of using skepticism as an argumentative tool? Christian. Hi, Sandra. Ready to talk about skepticism? I really, I am, but man, I'm getting distracted by this creationism thing. No, oh, no. Why? Um, I just want to argue against creationism for the theory of evolution, um, but that's not what we're supposed to do today, right? That's right. not what we're that's talking not, about. 
no, we're not we're not going to do that. And I realize that it is a contentious issue and Very. that people are going to have super strong feelings about it on either side. But we're not going to we're just not going to go there, y'all. We're just going to talk about skepticism. Okay, so if you're like me and you get very distracted by this creationism versus evolution thing that we kind of started out with, um, what are some other examples of skepticism that we can talk about to like steer us away from that distraction? Okay, that's a really good idea. Okay, so um, tell me any fact. I am speaking into a microphone right now. Um, actually, what if the microphone is just a figment of your imagination and there's no microphone there at all? Whoa! Whoa! I blew your mind. (laughs) Update. Christian's mind has been blown. Yeah, so that's like the brand of skepticism that's like, what if nothing is real? Yes. Like, it's like you're in the matrix, like, nothing you've ever thought is real. (laughs) Okay, so there's... That's a pretty extreme form of skepticism and uh, yes, I, kind of an annoying one too. <laughs> but um, what are, I mean, I use skepticism in my everyday life and I'm sure you do too. Like what are some kind of more everyday examples of skepticism? Okay. Yeah. So um, skepticism where people would just think that you're being smart and like cautious is when you evaluate like let's say a news source for any biases that they might have. So, for example, when you watch MSNBC, you're thinking, okay, I should take this with a grain of salt because this is very left-leaning. Or when you watch Fox News, same thing. You're taking it with a grain of salt because it's kind of right-leaning. So that's, you know, you're evoking some skepticism there. But um, a lot of people, I think, would say that that's a healthy way to go about your life. And what's interesting is the people that we talk to – They actually have different ideas about skepticism based on their discipline, their different disciplines. It's pretty cool. So we talked to two different philosophers. Um, First, our very own Andy Coulson. Host of Examining Ethics. That is correct, yes. And um, Barry Lamb. Host of High Nation. That is also correct. And he actually also is a philosophy professor at Vassar. Um, We also talked to a geologist, um, and she teaches here at DePaul University. Her name is Jeannie Pope. So when I when I generally think about philosophers, like the stereotype that I associate with philosophers is like that kind of, how do you know? Like, it's not all a dream, (laughs) that kind of thinking. Yeah, I definitely think that is a stereotype. Which is interesting because Andy told us about this survey that was done that might show that that is not true. There was a survey of philosophers, like, like, I don't know, maybe like five years ago, where they just wanted to figure out, like, are there any views in philosophy that are, like, common to all philosophers? Um, And actually, anti-skepticism was by far the most common of all the views out there. So I think 81% of philosophers embrace what you might call non-skeptical realism, um, which is they're like, they're not skeptics. They think we can know stuff about the external world. Uh, they think we can know that there is an external world and that the, you know a lot of the things that we think ourselves to know, we do know. And only like 4% of them were inclined to accept skepticism about the external world. So whereas in real life, if I was using the phrase skepticism, I would be talking about someone just saying like, oh, I don't believe you. 
Um, <laughs> in philosophy, it's actually the idea that we can't know anything. Like, you can't know you have two hands kind of thinking. And so when Andy says that most philosophers don't believe in skepticism, that's the skepticism that they're talking about. A lot of people think that the way to be smart is skeptical. Philosophers wouldn't say that. And that's ironic because most people think philosophy is like the home for skepticism, right? Like we're the ones who are supposed to be the skeptics. We're the ones who are supposed to be raising doubt about everything. But it's ironic that most philosophers think that a very common kind of skepticism is not true. Um, and and what's that, that common kind of skepticism? Uh, that you can't know uh, things about the world outside your own head. So, like, is this, like, a matrix type of philosophy? Yes. Like, this chair isn't really real. Yeah. Is that kind of thing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's that kind of thing. Okay. So, basically, you're saying that philosophers kind of throw out that kind of skepticism. Yeah, they throw out that kind of skepticism. But they also throw out other kinds of skepticism because they show that it kind of leads to that kind of skepticism. So, it's very difficult to be skeptical about other things just by, like, raising a little bit of doubt. Because most philosophers will say, no, 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 you can't do that. Because that commits you to not being able to know anything about the world. But that type of skepticism that philosophers throw out, that's not the only type of skepticism, right? Right. And philosopher Barry Lamb actually told us that using skepticism might be good for you based on what kind of person you are. I think skepticism is a very important tool, especially for people who find themselves for lack of a better term, um, credulous, people who tend to be very trusting of not just, you know, authority, including scientific authority or religious authority or whatever, but people who just tend to believe a lot. Um, you know, there are different kinds of people. Some people just tend to just believe everything somebody tells them. And I think that that attitude, when carried out, too far can be a very um, harmful thing both to an individual and especially to their, their decision-making. The way Barry describes it, there's actually a kind of spectrum of skepticism. And he says that um, the way that another philosopher, William James, explains it is um, really useful. So the way that James wanted us to think about it is that um, some people are really afraid of being duped. They, one of the worst things that can happen is if you believe something and it's just wrong, right? And so you've been duped. And that attitude that you ought to be, that you should be afraid of being duped so much so that you should be very, very cautious in whether you start believing something. Um, that kind of attitude you might call skeptical, right? That's the kind of attitude that you're going to have very high standards for when you believe something or when you're going to act on something. Um, and the other end of that spectrum are people who are not that afraid of being duped, don't find it all that bad if you end up believing things that turn out to be wrong, so what? You get this benefit where if you're more open to the world and just believe a lot more, then you're going to get a lot of things right, too, 
even if you end up believing a lot of things that are wrong. You know, there's, I don't think there is a consensus about what the right place on that spectrum is. Obviously, you don't want to go around believing everything. Um, but on the other hand, I think James had a point. If you set your standards way too high, um, you're, you are not opening up yourself to things that could be right on the off chance that they're wrong. But as Barry let me know, the philosopher William James is actually biased against skepticism, which is why he framed it as being afraid and being and not being skeptical as being open. Um, so he actually reframed it for me so that I could hear what it sounds like from the other perspective. You know, there's another way to frame it, and I don't know, people can think about it for themselves, is carefulness versus sloppiness. And, and, and when you start believing things based without having high standards, that's sloppiness as opposed to being careful. And for a scientist like Jeannie Pope, it's, it's about being cautious. I think that skepticism in science is important. Um, I think that scientists are taught to be cautious or to be hesitant towards accepting that you want to have very high standards for accepting a particular criterion um, as being valid. So we, we talk about the process of validation, what makes something a valid um, observation or makes something a valid data point. And uh, there's a a process for that, which is why we talk about um, the, the process of, of science. And so one always has to have that um, space for an alternative hypothesis, for another explanation. Though Jeannie associates skepticism and caution together, Andy actually thinks there's a really important difference between the two. Being somewhat cautious in what you accept and and taking efforts to look at what all the evidence is um, all the evidence that's available to you that's a little bit different than saying anytime you're given evidence um, imagine some possibility that the evidence doesn't rule out and then say okay so we can't we still don't know the truth yet that's it's it's one thing to say weigh your evidence carefully Try to figure out which of the plausible hypotheses it supports. Um, that's just, that's critical thinking. Uh, like radical skepticism is just anytime you're presented with evidence, you can always imagine a possibility that your evidence doesn't rule out. So we've heard from Andy, Jeannie, and Barry about their overall feelings of skepticism, but. Now I want to know, is there a good philosophical reason for me to just like throw out someone's argument because they're, because of the skepticism that they're using? Yeah. Cause like I use skepticism in my everyday life all the time. I hear other people use it all the time and I'm fine with it. But then there are other instances like with the creation museum and the way that they use skepticism and I'm not fine with it and you're not fine with it. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it'd be nice to figure out when can we throw out skepticism because in and of itself, it's bad reasoning. Yeah. And so we can know whether we're just being biased against a group of people or a set of beliefs or when we can actually just throw out an argument because it's badly reasoned. 
And so Andy gave us a little puzzle to think about to, to help us think through whether or not a particular brand of skepticism is bad reasoning or not. There's actually a kind of well-known puzzle in philosophy of science that in many ways just is the sort of traditional skeptical argument. So the, the group paradox or puzzle is a kind of puzzle for anyone who thinks you can confirm a hypothesis like all emeralds are green um, just based on observation in the world. Um, because how might you how might you do this? Well, you go around and you look at some emeralds and here's an emerald it's green, here's an emerald it's green. You know, look at enough emeralds over time and eventually you're going to come to the reasonable conclusion that all emeralds are green. The problem is uh, there are lots of different hypotheses that are consistent with you having looked and seen that all the emeralds you've observed are green. So here's one. Here's a hypothesis. All emeralds are grew, which just means green while somebody's looking at them and blue when no one is looking at them. Right? Uh, now, the weird thing about that hypothesis, all emeralds are grew, uh, the evidence you have when you think all emeralds are green is exactly the same kind of evidence you would have if all emeralds are grew. So the idea is your evidence is kind of underdetermined. It, it doesn't uniquely determine one of those because that's exactly what the evidence would look like on either case, right? You know, the idea that the world is structured such that like emeralds magically switch color when people are looking away, that's a more complicated hypothesis. So you know, a lot of times people will appeal to simplicity and that's how they solve the puzzle. So it seems like he's saying if you have two options and one is simpler and seems to mesh with the observable world and the other one is super complicated, the simpler one is the better way to go. Yes. Um, I think he's pretty ready to throw the whole Gru hypothesis out the window. Uh, and it's actually really interesting because Jeannie doesn't agree. It's, it, but it is helpful. It is helpful. Okay. It is helpful. So here's why it's helpful. Do you want to know why it's helpful? Because you can test it. You can design an experiment around it. You can you can validate that they are blue or they're not blue. I mean, that, and that's why it's science, right? So one of two things will happen. Either the, um, the theory will stand or it will be disproven. And that's, and that's the really, really cool thing about science. I mean, okay, so now I'm going to just totally geek out, right? But I mean, that's actually what's good about it is that people are invited to challenge. So, so this gets to your nature of why is skepticism good. Um, skepticism invites you to challenge the theory in order to be able to demonstrate its robustness. So I can see why, like as a scientist, Jeannie doesn't mind when somebody brings up something like the GRU hypothesis because she can just test it. Um, and I can see why that's helpful for science, but I, I still have a problem with this brand of skepticism in everyday life because it, in everyday conversations, this kind of unnecessarily complicated um, hypothesis just kind of shuts the conversation down and stops it. Yeah. Barry and Andy actually talk about how annoying this is in philosophical conversations, too. You're actually touching upon probably what is the most used technique for making people feel skeptical, which is 
to provide a possible alternative explanation without having to show that that alternative explanation is in any way likely or has evidence that it's true or anything like that. I think if that kind of argument already leads me to thinking that there's no knowledge at all anywhere, then there's something wrong with that kind of arguing, right? Because I know in the philosophy classroom that those kinds of arguments are basically irresolvable. I think the problem is it's a very narrow and high standard view about what it takes to know something or have a reasonable belief. Go back to like skeptical arguments that say you can't know that you're not in the matrix right now. I mean, that's a, that's a really high standard. Unless you can like rule out that you're not some bodiless brain in a vat hooked up to a supercomputer, then I reject your knowledge claim. Like that's a really, really high standard. So, so if we're trying to f like puzzle out when skepticism might not be a valuable tool in an argument, um, I think what Barry and Andy are saying is that that point might be when we say, we might not know anything or that nothing might be real. Yeah, I think that's exactly what they would say. And it's interesting because, again, Jeannie's line is a little bit different. Um, she might She might not even have a line. It's more like there's pros and cons to using skepticism every time you use it. See, unfortunately, it's both. So, I mean, in all honesty, because there's been this sort of training towards caution, um, there's also been, it, it, it just comes as a habit also. Um, and therefore, it can be problematic because you can, you know, it can be hard to get over your own self. So caution, I still think is good, but um, but getting over your own self is also good, <laughs> or you know, or, or being open to right. So that's 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 the downside, I suppose. Um, the downside of being cautious, the downside of the skepticism, is that you might not be open to seeing the evidence that you might be, in fact, um, to bogged down or mired in um, what you think is already true. You've already come to a conclusion. So that icky feeling that I had when I was at the Creation Museum, looking at all of these exhibits with skeptical arguments, I was wondering, like, not only if that was bad reasoning, but I was also wondering if there was something ethically wrong with using skepticism in this way. So I brought that question back to Andy, and he told me about this idea about inconsistent application of skepticism. I think in certain cases, if you appeal to skepticism to, uh, say, preserve uh, or bolster a certain view, but you're not doing it consistently, I think there's an ethical issue. Like if you, if you immediately go to high standard skepticism whenever your worldview is being challenged, but then you boldly proclaim all kinds of things all the time that don't meet that high standard that you're holding everyone else to, there, I think there's a serious ethical issue there. I have respect for someone who wants to bite the bullet and say, yeah, I don't even know I have two hands. That's the 4% of philosophers out there. 
right? It's just inconsistent applications for standards of knowledge, right? Everyone else who disagrees with me has to meet this uber high standard. But I'm allowed to go around and assert whatever the heck I want with almost no evidence whatsoever, and, and I don't have to meet that high standard for anything that I'm claiming. That's where I think you run into ethical issues, and I think you see that a lot. So Sandra, I think, I think you and I were both really taken with Andy's idea of the selective application of skepticism and and how that might be bad. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it was interesting because later when we brought this idea up to Barry, he actually pointed out a time when it might make sense to selectively apply skepticism. Suppose we have a high schooler and they say, I've just refuted this, the ideal gas law. See, I did this experiment and it came out different from what everybody accepts it should come out as. And somebody says, no, you're just wrong. You've made a mistake. Is that morally wrong, right? It, it doesn't seem like it, right? Of course that's the right thing to say in that case. And like, but why is that? Like, why is one reaction the right reaction versus not? Well, it's got to be that you think that this established set of beliefs that come from like history or a lot of people is subject to a different set of standards than your own little experiment. Like you don't get to call, you know, make everybody else skeptical about something in chemistry because you, a high schooler, happen to have done an experiment. So what's, what's the issue here? The issue is we don't know, we don't quite know when making something fit is right or when it's wrong. And that's hard. That's the hard problem. That's a really hard problem in the philosophy of science. I feel like that high school experiment example really did a good job of showing me how inconsistently applied skepticism is actually really useful sometimes. Yeah, it's 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 a kind of shortcut that you need to function in the world, yeah. right? Um, and I can see that point for sure, but you know we come back to this often on the show. But I think inconsistently applied skepticism can also lead to things like epistemic injustice, and specifically the part of epistemic injustice called testimonial injustice, which is when you fail to give somebody that you're listening to credibility because of some kind of prejudice on your part. Yeah, that's a really good point. And Andy actually brought up that argument as a reason why inconsistently applied skepticism is no bueno. You don't take someone's testimony seriously uh, because you know, they could be lying. Um, <laughs> but you only take the they could be lying and I can't rule out that they're lying claim seriously if it happens to be a person of color or female or something like that. If, if someone were rejecting testimony based on what could be the case, what hasn't been ruled out yet, but would readily accept that testimony in almost any other circumstance if it were a white man, they'd be doing that too, be inconsistent applications of the standards for knowledge. Okay, so we've listened to people talk about how skepticism might be valuable um, and where skepticism might be problematic, and I'm still not 100% sure where I fall in all of that, um, and I still need to think through it a little bit more. But the one thing that I, I think I am going to take away from this show is that I just need to be very critical, self-critical of the way that I use skepticism in arguments in my own life. 
and maybe just watch myself when I'm being skeptical and make sure that I apply it evenly. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, What I was thinking was being really aware of when someone's trying to convince me of of something using skepticism as their argument. Um, I think I'm going to try to be really, really careful to not buy into that. And I've actually been noticing that a lot of the times these kinds of skeptical arguments don't happen face-to-face. They actually happen online. And um, especially memes. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed that, Christian, but like I think every meme on my Facebook is just like a hot mess of a skeptical argument. And like I remember the other day I saw this one that was like um, saying – that the DNC hackers weren't Russian because hackers know how to cover their tracks. And so because you think it's Russia, it's not Russia. So it's basically that brand of radical skepticism where it just, memes just kind of shut the conversation down and you can't talk about it anymore. Yeah, like this meme literally says, if you think something, then you don't know it. Like, because you think it, you're wrong. (laughs) Yeah, memes basically just uh, drop the mic and leave the room, right? (laughs) (laughs) So that's our show for today, guys. Um, But before you all leave, I have a super quick quiz question for you and that question is how much do you love our show from one to ten do 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 that's a copyrighted song wait what that's a copyrighted song oh i didn't really think about that okay um anyway uh tense am i hearing some tense from the from the crowd from the live audience we have here i heard a ten you had a turn okay cool um well if you answer ten or anywhere near ten could you just shimmy on up to your rooftop and uh, shout from it your love of this podcast, please. There is another option to getting on the rooftop, which is that that. you could just tell your friends about us. That would work. I I really, I just don't know about that. I think you could just get on your roof real quick. (laughs) Or you could just give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Yeah, I think your roof is a pretty good option, guys. Don't (laughs) listen to her. There is another option, which is that you could reach out to us on Twitter, where you can find us at Examining Ethics. Um, you could also find us on Facebook. <sighs> Christian. Such okay. A if you joy. are <laughs> if you are not going to shout from your rooftop, I Which is be, fine. Don't which, get on your roof, guys. <laughs> I'd be pretty happy to hear from you via email. If you have a comment in general about the show or anything you'd like to talk about related to skepticism email us a voice memo and you can send that to examiningethics at gmail.com. All right, that's our show. So until the last Wednesday in February, have a good month. Bye. Hi, this is Examining Ethics number one fan, Aubrey Dugan. Examining Ethics with Andy Coulson is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Sondra Burton and Christian Weishart produced the show. Our logo was created by Evie Brogius. Our music is by Corey Gray, Poddington Bear, and Jason Leonard and can be found online at freemusicarchive.org. 
Examining Ethics is made possible by the generous support of DePauw alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. And special thanks to the Creation Museum.